This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Who is allowed to drive in Colorado? That question is at the heart of a debate at the Capitol. A law passed in 2013 lets undocumented immigrants get licenses. But the program faces Republican opposition, and so it's been limited. That means only three offices now issue the licenses, not enough to meet the demand. Aleda Ramirez of Denver says she's tried for two years to get an appointment. She's in the country illegally. Every weekday, she says she calls multiple times. Eight o'clock, noon, and four o'clock. And uh, it is frustrating. I think it's better to go and play lotto and win than getting an appointment. Hear that? She thinks her odds of winning the lottery are better than getting an appointment for a driver's license. Well, State Representative Jonathan Singer, a Longmont Democrat, has a bill to open up more offices using revenue from the fees that applicants pay. Republican State Senator Kevin Lundberg of Berthoud, though, has some real reservations. Senator Representative, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Representative, why should people who may be in the country illegally easily get driver's licenses? This bill is really about making sure that we have a program that works. A couple of years ago, we put through a public safety program that was supported by members of law enforcement as well as members of the immigration reform community uh, that said it's time to get people insured and get driver's licenses. And this is what this bill is fulfilling that promise in a way that's efficient because we know that in states that have done this, both Democratic and Republican states that have done this, the number of uninsured drivers goes down. The number of accidents go down. So this is about public safety, rebuilding trust in a community uh, that doesn't always have trust with law enforcement, and at the same time doing the right thing for regular citizens that actually you know, deserve to know that people who are on the road know the rules of the road and have insurance. Why does getting a license necessarily lead to higher insured motorists? Well, that's one of the things that this bill requires is you have to show proof of insurance in addition to getting uh, a driver's test and then getting your driver's license. So there's a number of hoops that you have to jump through. So this program is not paid for by tax dollars, but uh, through fees that these immigrant drivers pay to get the licenses. And as we said, demand for them was greater than you expected. Republicans opposed an expansion of offices last year. Uh, That means for now, undocumented immigrants can get appointments at one of three locations, Denver, Colorado Springs, and Grand Junction. Representative, what exactly would your bill this session do? Well, what this would do is this would allow more driver's license offices to open up across the state. I had people from the immigration community come to me and say, you know what, look, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to play, uh, pay to play, pay my dues and, and learn the rules of the road. And then they're saying, you know what? I have a driver's license appointment, but it's three months out, it's six months out, it's 12 months out, and the appointment isn't even in Denver. I've got to get from, somehow, got to get from Denver to Grand Junction to even get my appointment. And that's why we're bringing this bill, is to make sure that we can open up these offices statewide, not just in three far-flung places. And there's language in this bill to open six additional offices for a total of nine across the state. Senator Lundberg, it sounds like two arguments might be going on here. That is the, the fundamental nature of the program and about the, the reach of it. Well, you do bring up the, uh, the real question of it. It's, it's not just how is this program functioning, but should this program have been in place in the first place? And there are many here in Colorado who do not believe that if you came here illegally that we should then 
put up a system where we try to give sort of a, a backdoor amnesty, at least to the extent of, of uh, allowing driver's licenses and letting people integrate in, into the, the system here in Colorado where they didn't start the correct way. I mean, you know, brings me back to that uh, phrase I've heard so many times, what part of illegal do you not understand here? And what we did is we stood in the way of expanding the program beyond what it was originally designed to do. It it had a, you know, a, a, a target number of licenses that were to be uh, issued, and what we did stand in the way of was expanding that to larger numbers. And there was an unintended consequence that did occur when it was originally implemented, and that is that legitimate citizens in the state of Colorado found that they were unable to get driver's licenses in a timely fashion. And uh, therefore, it really is appropriate to pull this program back to a limited number of places. And I really don't feel very compelled to try to find a way for a program to work when it proved to be dysfunctional, and I disagreed with the fundamental reason for it existing in the first place. Well, there's a lot to break apart there. So you call this backdoor amnesty. How would you respond to the representatives' concerns that, listen, they're here, you might as well make sure they're insured and in the system? What do you say? Well, this goes to the real question of are we perpetuating the system that, uh, that encourages people to come here illegally, uh, I would like to see legal immigration occur, but we've got to have the proper federal controls on, on the borders, and we've got to have state policies that are good for those who came here legally and not try to you know, fix it later for everybody who came here illegally. Is there evidence that offering undocumented immigrants driver's licenses makes Colorado more attractive to them? Do you know of of folks who've moved here because of that program? I cannot give you statistical data, but I can give you a common sense notion on that, that if you make it much more desirable to be here, that you encourage more people to participate in whatever that is that you've made more desirable. Kind of a chicken and the egg uh, uh, discussion there of which one is going to initiate the process. But I can tell you this, that if we, if we take this program and expand it, which is really what we're talking about here, that it will make it more desirable and more of an attraction for people to come here illegally. If you were hit by someone who is undocumented while you were driving your car, would you prefer that that person be insured, uninsured, with a license, without a license? <laughs> well, first off, a, a, a prudent driver has uninsured insurance uh, so as to guard against that, uh, that possibility for themselves. But here's what I would most prefer, and that is that there be fewer possibilities of somebody being here illegally for that scenario to actually transpire. This is a national discussion, too, on several levels. I I believe that the driver's license question is, in a sense, muddying the waters because you're taking a short-term benefit because, by all means, if somebody hits me, I'd rather they have insurance. But uh, I'd rather they be legal uh, citizens who are on the roads and legal aliens, 
you know, I'm, I'm not questioning we give uh, licenses to aliens, those who are not citizens, but they need to have come here legally to be able to go through our process, our, the rest of our legal process. Representative Singer, to this notion that the driver's license program, and uh, certainly if it were to be expanded, is a welcome mat uh, for those who are in the country illegally. I'm glad that question was brought up because I, I think that's one of the things that we, we do need to respond to. There, there's no evidence that shows in any of the states that have put this forward, whether you're talking about Washington, D.C., New Mexico, or Utah, uh, that this has actually increased the number of undocumented citizens. Yeah, but doesn't it make un- sense that if I have two states to choose between to move to, one says I can get a driver's license and one says I can't, that that would be at least – under consideration as I do the pluses and minuses. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that, that is, it's a fair question, but it hasn't shown itself to be true in the states that have put this forward over the last, since really since 2005. But in terms of this being a welcome mat or an unwelcome mat, You've got to be in the state for at least two years. You have to have have shown that you, through either bills that you've received or or other um, affidavits, that you've lived in the state for two years. And so I guess this is a welcome mat that would say, come here, wait two years, and then see what happens. And and that just doesn't seem particularly efficient. Um, This is really just about making sure the program works uh, the way it should. And we we underestimated some things when this first passed, and we're fixing that in a way that makes sure that more people are getting on the books and getting their insurance. Senator, one reason to expand the program might be this issue of scammers who've taken advantage of its uh, relative, I I guess, scarcity by hoarding Mm -hmm. appointments and then selling them to undocumented immigrants at a high price. The Colorado Attorney General announced an investigation into this black market earlier this year. And and she said in a statement that her office had received word that appointments were being sold for as much as a thousand bucks a pop. Doesn't the scarcity of this lead to something like that? You're right. That is a problem as well. And yeah, we I think we can find some common ground in those areas and stopping that abuse. I believe the Department of Revenue needs to have a system that doesn't allow somebody to obtain a reservation for a driver's license appointment and then somehow transfer that over to somebody else, that needs to be cured. And maybe we need some stout uh, law against scamming on that, you know, against the use of a government appointment to being sold at a profit. But you don't believe that making the appointments less precious by having more offices is the, is the route to solve that? For all of the reasons that we've been discussing uh, so far in this uh, discussion, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not the, the right course, in my opinion, to simply say, let's open this up wider. And I, I'm even scratching my head as to how in the world this can be accomplished, because when they tried it initially and opened it up to regions, you know, offices all over the place, it backed everything up. Up in my county, in Larimer County, I believe they had an office open in Fort Collins that would allow the illegal driver's license applications to occur. And that not only plugged up that uh, driver's license office, but then more people came down to Loveland and everybody was waiting in line for endless hours. Um, uh, we, we shouldn't be sacrificing everybody's ability to get a driver's license in order to satisfy this, what I think is uh, not an entirely legitimate reason for issuing licenses in the first place. Representative Singer, uh, address these these points for me. And let's start with that one that uh, the senator brought up earlier, which is this has led in the past to a slowdown for other driver's license applicants. 
I think it's a fair question. It's interesting. You know, you heard a little bit of common ground between Senator Lundberg and myself on, on some of these issues. And it's it's one of those things that at least we can find where, where our common ground is and start there. I really want to attack this at the root level. And by opening up more driver's license offices, I would hope that you would actually lessen the pressure uh, as you have people trying to get through the door, trying to get through appointments. If you only have three offices open and you have tens of thousands of people trying to get their application through, uh, I, I think you back up the system e- even further. So I, I hope this is actually a, a release valve as opposed to something that would further gum up the system. And, and this is something that immigrants pay for themselves through a fee. We've actually got uh, a pot of money of, of about $1.6 million, about half of which hasn't even been spent because of the additional offices that were were shut down in, in the last debate. So, you know, we've got money sitting there doing nothing right now, and, and I'd rather see that money going to the source that it was originally intended for. Senator, Representative, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate being with you. Thanks again for having us. State Representative Jonathan Singer is a Longmont Democrat, and State Senator Kevin Lundberg is a Republican from Berthoud. They talked with us about Colorado's driver's license program for undocumented immigrants. You can weigh in as well below the digital version of this story at cprnews.org. Coming up, a lesser-known line on Peyton Manning's resume. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Quarterback Peyton Manning retires today after 18 seasons in the NFL, four of them with the Broncos. The Hall of Fame shoe-in will be remembered as one of the greatest to play his position. But of all the lines on his resume, here's one you may not be familiar with. Children's book author. Yes, in 2009, he wrote Family Huddle with his father Archie and one of his brothers. This is the story of when Peyton, Eli, and their older brother Cooper were little kids growing up in New Orleans and Louisiana. This is just kind of a fun book that talks about the times they spent together playing football. This is children's librarian Gigi Pagliarulo, who read a little of the book for us. Go deep, called Archie. It was the boy's favorite play. Peyton ran full speed across the lawn. His dad threw the ball high and far. Peyton dived and caught the ball on his fingertips. He rolled to a stop in the grass as his brothers cheered. The neighbor's dog licked his face. Olivia, their mom, was laughing on the front porch. Nice catch, Peyton. You boys come in and wash up before we go. This weekend is going to be filled with family and football. Nice catch indeed. Peyton Manning retires with five MVP awards, dozens of passing records, and two Super Bowl titles. Female professors at Colorado State University made less money than their male counterparts in recent years, and that's just one of the pay fairness issues under scrutiny at CSU. Also in question, hefty raises for administrators and whether semi-retired chancellors deserve their six-figure salaries. Nick Coltrane is with the Coloradoan newspaper in Fort Collins. His reporting helped uncover the controversy, and he spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, and uh, thank you for having me. Nick, the pay gap between male and female professors was brought to light last spring by Dr. Mary Meyer, a CSU statistics professor who was working on a CSU salary committee. Uh, Describe what she found. 
So Dr. Meyer, she was looking at the uh, way salary increases were handled at CSU, and she found that gender was one of the um, parameters or one of the metrics that they were using. And as she explained it, as she understood it, that metric was being used as a way of kind of ensuring gender equity. But so inadvertently, it ended up being something that was kind of putting women into their own tier and males into their own tier. So it was comparing male professors to male professors, female professors to female professors. And so uh, inadvertently, but perhaps systematically tying gender to how much professors were being paid. And so she found that the amongst the assistant and associate professors, there was no real disparity. But once you got to the full professor level, there was starting to be a disparity there, uh, female professors being paid less than males. So when Dr. Myers discovered this pay gap, she didn't go immediately to the press. What did she do with this information? Uh, she brought it to the CSU administration and tried to kind of give presentations on it. Wasn't really getting much traction there. And so it just kind of fell by the wayside until it was brought to our attention. And how did that happen? Just talking with another source over at Colorado State University. And that source had mentioned that uh, this report from Dr. Meyer had come out and I was able to get my hands on it. And after looking at it, uh, we reached out to CSU. And from there, CSU promised to look at the uh, look at the matter, both kind of instantaneously with a real quick reaction okay, how can we fix this problem if it does exist? And then from there, forming a longer-term committee to look at the issue and how can we actually um, do merit increases and salary increases in a most equitable manner. And so that latter part is still ongoing. And CSU gets about $100 million in state support. So this is an issue for taxpayers, not just the CSU community. Uh, Once the pay gap became public, how did the university respond? They initially responded. Um, Dr. Frank said, uh, sent out an email to kind of the campus saying, this is something that we are looking into and we promise that anything that any disparity that there may be, it is inadvertent, but it's something, it's a matter that we are very much going to take very seriously because Colorado State University wants to be as equitable as possible. And Dr. Frank is Dr. Tony Frank. He's the CSU president. And, and CSU did do its own review and a few months ago announced they'd found that 25 percent of female professors were underpaid compared with their male counterparts. So, so they gave raises. They actually increased the rate, the wages there, an average of about $5,000, uh, you reported. So I just want to reiterate that, that CSU President Tony Frank kind of took a two-pronged approach. Uh, he ordered the formation of a committee to investigate the specific salaries in question, and then he also looked at a, for, a wider committee to look at these underlying issues. Will that final report of these committees be made public, do you think? It's hard to say. I obviously can't speak for CSU. It's something that we'd definitely be very interested as a community up here in Fort Collins, and I'm sure statewide, in knowing what those findings are and what changes Colorado State University will be making to the way it handles pay equity on campus. And would it be wise to maybe talk about bringing in an outside consultant to to possibly look at this on a larger scale? There is an outside consulting firm that's kind of giving a guiding hand, if you will. Not to mention there are professors that have served on similar committees at other universities. I know there's uh, a gentleman in Duke that I've spoken with, a couple others just kind of spattered across the country. Nick Coltrane is a reporter with the Colorado newspaper in Fort Collins and has been investigating reports of a pay gap and unfair salaries at Colorado State University. From the beginning, CSU President Tony Frank called the pay disparity between men and women unintentional. And uh, Dr. Myers, who uncovered the problem, has also used that word. From your investigation, do you agree this was not deliberate discrimination? From what I've seen, I'd probably characterize as kind of being a ghost in the machine, if you will, of the way salary increases were handled. And so now that this uh, issue has been discovered, Colorado State University is taking steps to address the problems as they may be.
And I want to get a little bit deeper into how you uh, reported this. From what I've, I've, I've understood, this hasn't been easy for you to report. Under the Colorado Open Records Act, CSU was required to make salary information publicly available, which it does in the form of a written report. Uh, in the course of your reporting, you asked for a digital copy so you could sort and analyze information. How did the university respond to that request? Um, much as a brick wall would respond to a gust of wind. Oh, I see. Um, Yeah, when we asked for the digital copy, we went back and forth with them some, and basically they argued under Colorado Open Records Act, us providing this in a physical form in a way that's available to the public meets our requirements. We're not going to go above and beyond that, regardless of um, what kind of reporting or interest there may be in the community. And they're pretty steadfast about that. And so they gave you a paper copy. Is that correct? The paper copy is available in the library here at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. So if somebody was interested in this information and they happen to live in Denver or the Springs or anywhere else around the state, it looks like they would have to come up to Fort Collins themselves and take a gander. You can't check out the book for more than two hours. Um, We tried to make, we initially wanted to just make paper copies of like run through a copy machine. Uh And even that was a problem because it's spiral bound. So you wouldn't be able to necessarily take the thing apart and just run through in a batch. It would have to be page by page. And so what did you do to to, to make it easier for yourself? I mean, of course, it's a lot of data that you need to get through to make the story. Yeah. And the paper copy, it's about 145 pages, uh, approximately 4,800 entries in it. And so, uh, Kind of did the elbow grease thing, I suppose, of taking taking the old iPhone down to the library and taking a picture of every page, um, combining that into a PDF. And from there, we were able to import it into Microsoft Excel, cleaning up that information, making sure things like the number one wasn't read as an L or an O was not read as a zero, that kind of thing. And from there, and honestly, just having the information digitally available and having an opportunity to sort of play with it, if you will, and kind of run different comparisons, that's how we were able to find the crux of our most recent piece that uh, kind of found how top administrators were receiving percentage point increases on their pay that was out of line with the rest of the university. And that's the seven people who report to the president of the university received raises that were a full percentage point higher than the average raise at the school. And they already make six figures already. It meant their average dollar increase per year reporting was four times greater than the university average. How did the university explain that? The terms they used were um, that these folks and other people at the university may have received larger than average raises. Uh, It had to do with expertise, what their production was in the past year. And by and large, the university answered in very generic terms to justify the raises that these individuals received. Aren't these high salaries needed to essentially uh, keep the institutional knowledge of a strong university? Don't, don't you need to, to match the salaries to keep uh, the jobs competitive in the university? Oh, that's certainly an argument that CSU can make. And uh, as to the validity of it, I guess that's up to the listeners and the readers to make a judgment call for themselves. One of the Folks I did speak to in my reporting for this, he's a senior researcher for the American Association of University Professors, and he was drawing a comparison to some of the high top-tier academic salaries and like the CEOs on Wall Street or other big corporations. You get one person who makes a 5 or 10% raise because, say, a university really wants to hold on to them, and then next time their neighbor university or peer university is hiring a similar position, that new person can point to that higher, that raise and say, okay, well, I'm just as good as he or she is. So I want an equitable pay as to whether or not that is right or wrong, or if these folks 
are that val- valuable to the university that they serve. I mean, again, that's a judgment call for the university and whoever is paying the bills of the university, whether it's taxpayers or students or what have you. There are two former chancellors, a position that's been eliminated, that collectively are still being paid nearly half a million dollars a year. Uh, in your reporting, how does the university explain that? Their salaries now are kind of divvied up between what they are doing as a chancellor emeritus and then also kind of some special tasks that they've taken on. For example, Chancellor Joe Blake, he also does a lot of work at the university and kind of external relations. Um, the university said he was responsible for several multi-million dollar donations, for example. I know that he's also done a lot of work to do things like expand accessibility to the university for military veterans. What about about Mike Martin, the, the other former chancellor? He's making $305,000 a year, according to your reporting. That is correct. And um. Again, some of that is divvied up specifically because he is a chancellor emeritus. And then there is another portion that's divvied out for some of the work that he's been doing, um, as he described it to me, kind of in his original field of economics. Still, were you surprised that they were drawing these high salaries? Was that surprising to you? Hmm. Um, (laughs) Surprise is always kind of an interesting word. Anytime you hear, however, of somebody who is holding kind of that emeritus role and that they are still drawing such high salaries, and in the case of Dr. Martin, how it's still very comparable to what he was making as a when Chancellor was his full-time job. It's always interesting. We thought it would be very interesting to our community, to folks uh, associated with Colorado State University and the taxpayers. So you look at somebody like Dr. Martin, he's still the 11th highest paid employee at the CSU and CSU system level. And Chancellor Emeritus Blake, he's still in the top 250 of the highest paid employees of a system that's employing 6,000 plus people when you take into account state classifieds. You describe in your reporting that these salary issues come at a sensitive time for CSU. Uh, They're building a $220 million stadium. Not everyone supports that. There's always pressure on tuition, especially given a big decline in how much the school gets from the state. Uh, What's the mood like among the faculty and students and the community uh, where CSU is? That is a case where I definitely use the word surprise for a lot of folks um, as far as the idea of, okay, these people are making a lot of money. Meanwhile, tuitions has doubled in the past 10 years. Um, there is the stadium, which is very divisive across the campus. I think if you talk to 10 people, talk to 10 people, you'll get 11 different opinions kind of thing. And so just looking at these dollars and cents when dollars and cents have been at the top of mind for so many students and faculty and just residents of Fort Collins in terms of the stadium, it was something that bore looking out. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking about this. Nick Coltrane is a reporter with the Coloradoan in Fort Collins. He spoke with Nathan Heffel. There are links to a list of CSU's 100 highest paid employees and to Nick's reporting at cprnews.org. When we come back, a proposed ballot measure will ask, can the state keep your Tabor refund? What the plan is for the money. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Would you prefer a tax refund or more money for schools and roads? That's how a coalition frames a debate it hopes to spark in Colorado. The organization announced Friday that it's starting a campaign to get a measure before voters. It allows the state to spend more tax money than it can now. They want to use it to fix potholes and reduce class sizes instead of refunding the money to taxpayers as the Constitution requires. Our education reporter Jenny Brundine talked about the announcement with CPR's Joanne Allen. Jenny, backers of this proposed ballot measure believe the state's financial future is at stake. 
They do. Civic and business leaders last summer launched a bipartisan effort they're calling Building a Better Colorado, and they held about 30 meetings across the state. One of the things they focused on is problems they see with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR. Voters approved it in 1992, adding it to the state constitution. And one of its provisions is a revenue cap. So essentially, when state revenue collection outpaces population growth and inflation in Colorado, that revenue must be sent back to taxpayers as refunds. But this coalition feels that robs state government of money it needs for critical areas like schools and roads. Why do they believe that? Here's the conundrum some see. Colorado is the 12th richest state in terms of per capita income. It has low unemployment, a strong economy, especially along the front range, soaring housing prices, and growing tax revenue. Yet it still ranks in the bottom handful of states for spending per student. And the state transportation department says it only has money to maintain roads and no more for traffic lanes or more transit options to address congestion. One example, uh, many people hoped as Colorado's economy roared back from the recession, it would mean the state could start returning the nearly $5 billion cut from public schools since the recession. Meantime, taxpayers are on track to get $150 million in tax rebates this year. Jenny, what specifically will this measure ask for? The ballot measure will ask voters to keep and use excess state revenue beyond the Tabor cap. It's expected the ballot language will specify that the two largest slices of the surplus pie would go to pre-K through 12th grade education and transportation. The rest would be targeted at mental health and senior services. It's expected that at least a couple of measures will be forwarded to voters. One ballot measure will have a 10-year sunset. The other will not have a sunset. And there is another issue at stake. A separate ballot measure will ask voters to make it harder to amend the state constitution. This group feels like a higher threshold is really needed because now it's too easy to get a measure before voters, and that leads to conflicts in the constitution, like the revenue cap in Tabor and another amendment that requires the state to fully fund schools. So who are some of the supporters of this ballot measure? Dan Ritchie, the former chancellor of the University of Denver, is the co-chair of the campaign. So far, there are a variety of education, transportation, mental health, and seniors groups backing the effort. Representatives from some of these groups tell me they've already begun thinking about ways to explain the idea to voters. And a number of big-name current and former office holders supported the effort to hold public meetings about Tabor across the state. And those include Governor Hickenlooper, who's a Democrat, and former U.S. Senator Hank Brown, a Republican. But the coalition isn't saying yet if they support the ballot measure campaign. And what about opposition? Is there any? Some conservatives could oppose this. They like how the revenue cap in Tabor limits the growth of government. And they argue, well, taxpayers know how to spend their money better than government. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine speaking with Joanne Allen. The group must get the language of its ballot measure approved by the state. Then it can gather signatures. If it's successful in November, it would be the first time since 2005 that Coloradans vote to suspend part of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Now your feedback in Loud and Clear. 
On Super Tuesday, there was chaos at some caucus sites, particularly Democratic ones where voters took part in a presidential straw poll. Shortly after, we put caucus-goers' frustrations to the chairman of the Colorado Democratic Party, Rick Palacio, and asked if an apology was warranted. Sure, I would apologize uh, that people had to wait in line, and if anyone actually was turned away uh, or gave up and decided that they weren't going to wait it out, uh, I do uh, offer my sincerest uh, apologies. Sonia Erickson told us on Facebook, thank you for insisting that he take a moment to apologize on the air. That was an important step in owning the solution. Sonia, you're welcome, but I'll say that I didn't insist he apologize. I merely asked if he wished to. Veronica Collin of Wheat Ridge, meanwhile, was not impressed. I'm outraged. I'm really angry that the Democrats are making it so difficult for us to vote. There's no reason in this modern age to have that kind of disorganization and that kind of inconvenience for people trying to do the right thing. I will do everything in my power to get Rick Palacio out of his job because he clearly doesn't get it. And Twitter user at Denver Victoria thought Palacio threw volunteers under the bus, tweeting, quote, instead of taking any responsibility, Rick Palacio shifted Colorado caucus organizational issues to volunteers and voters. It is worth noting, though, that he also thanked them for their service. Some listeners were upset about the results last Tuesday, specifically that Senator Bernie Sanders and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton may end up with equal representation at the national convention, thanks to Clinton's support from party insiders dubbed superdelegates. Garrett Muma of Fort Collins wrote in, What kind of democracy is it when 60 percent of Democrats voted for Sanders, and yet the delegate count, the only number that really matters, is tied with Clinton's? The system does not represent the will of the people. Well, Garrett, CPR News will be covering the issue of superdelegates in greater depth. Last week, I spoke with the director of a new documentary called Rolling Papers. It's about the creation of The Cannabis, a Denver Post website that covers marijuana. The film features staff writer Brittany Driver, who has a pot and parenting column. She worried that because of her very public marijuana use, Child Protective Services might remove her two-year-old. CPS, short of them saying that me being a responsible pot user is going to leave me free and clear... I'm always going to be worried because there have been children who've been taken away this year. That claim about children being taken away struck some of you as off base. So we ran it by Denver Human Services. Here is spokeswoman Julie Smith. It is way more complicated than that. It is definitely not something where we come in and go, oh, you have marijuana in the home, then clearly your child's not safe. That's not what we do. We would look at, is that drug accessible to the child? Could the child ingest that drug, uh, which would cause harm to them? We're really looking at the safety of the child, not necessarily at substance use that's occurring in the home. But if a parent's drug use does endanger their kid? We would need to look at other placement for that child, at least in the short term until we can help that parent get back on their feet or get some help or or whatever was occurring there. For her part, columnist Brittany Driver says her own fears as a parent have dissipated since the film was made. Finally, in Loud and Clear, a call for stories about Cuba. As U.S.-Cuban relations thaw, we're interested in Coloradans whose lives will change as a result, whether it's personally or in business. Email us with your experience, news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. 
and you can always keep in touch through social media, CPR News on Facebook and at Colorado Matters on Twitter. Lastly, a great place to comment is at the bottom of individual stories at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Even though they faced retribution from the Taliban, 13 young Afghan women made history recently. They were the first to summit a nearly 17,000-foot peak in the country's Panjshir Valley, and they'd never climbed a mountain before last summer's expedition. Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, Colorado, led these young women. We spoke with her in January about the ascent and about what she has planned for this year. Danica, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So an American nonprofit called Ascend organized the expedition, trained the women who ranged in ages 16 to 22, and then invited you to lead them. The original plan, as I understand it, was to summit Mount Noshok at nearly 25,000 feet. It's the highest peak in Afghanistan. But I guess after a scouting trip, you made a different plan, and it wasn't just because of terrain, but because of the Taliban? Yes, that's correct. We Two weeks prior to our expedition, violence in the Badakhshan province had escalated, and the airline that we were going to use to get there had been shut down as well. And those two things led us to um, find a new objective. It was just impossible to climb in that region. Were you disappointed? Because it's something of an iconic summit, isn't it? I was disappointed, yeah, and the girls were quite disappointed. Uh, a couple of them actually thought, we're not going to go, we're not going to participate in this expedition, because they were so excited to go climb the country's highest point. You said girls. I'm always very cautious <laughs> about whether whether yeah. to say young, you know young women or girls, but some right. of them were girls in your mind. Well, you know, and it's, it is a conscious choice to call them girls. Um, it's partially cultural in Afghanistan, the term doctoro means daughter or girl, and it's a very respectful term. Um, calling somebody a woman there is um, indicating they're older, they're probably married, they you know, are living a very different life, and a girl is, is kind of like equivalent of saying princess. And so calling them doctoro uh, is very respectful, but it is translated directly as girl. Interesting. Well, you settled on a nearly 17,000-foot peak in the Panjshir Valley, and you, I should say, have been a full-time guide for 13 years. You've been climbing mountains all over the world, so you have a lot of experience. Uh, but you say that this particular peak is really challenging terrain. How do you prepare first-time climbers? First, mm. first time. Yeah, and unfortunately, the girls don't have a lot of opportunities to train. They're in Kabul where they're, they're very limited on what they can do. Even girls in the mountains are fairly limited on they can't go out without somebody else. They usually have to have a male escort. So our girls were hiking uh, once a week. On Fridays they would get out and hike the nearby mountains, and we'd take them rock climbing. And that was really the only chance they had to prepare. Did the men in their lives, fathers, relatives, brothers, um object to any of this? One of the requirements for any of the team members that we have is their families have to be supportive. Uh, And that support ranged from some fathers being very enthusiastic and brothers wanting to come along to other families. One One of the families, the daughter, the youngest daughter, was coming to practice and didn't have her father's approval, and we continually said to her, you, you can't be part of the team unless we have his approval. 
And eventually he gave approval and just prior to the expedition asked if his other daughter could join. And we were pretty maxed out with 12 girls. I had all the equipment ready and everything ready to go. But because it was this very conservative father asking for his second daughter to come when he hadn't let the first one join, I, I agreed and we took a 13th girl, which, which was a, a large group. Yeah. Why do you think he changed his mind? I think uh, he really saw the change in his daughter and the shift in her. The first time I met with him to, you know, to try to get his approval for her to join, he uh, basically said, you know, I, I think what you're doing is a waste of time. It's a waste of money and resources. She's a girl. She's not really worth anything, mm. but I don't know what else to do with her, so see, see what you can do with her. And then I met with him about a month later and expressed to him how strong of a rock climber she was and what a great role model and leader she was for the other girls. And you could see his eyes brighten a little bit. And by the end of our expedition, when his daughters came back, there was a significant shift in him, real pride at seeing what they had done. And um, for me, it was a really moving experience to see that shift in this man. I understand you were surprised by the things that came easily to these (laughs) girls and the things that they struggled with. Will you share an example of that? Sure, yeah. One of the things I was concerned about as we were climbing this peak, you get up on this ridge, and there's a 1,000 to 1,500-foot drop down the the north side of the ridge, and I didn't tell the girls about it because I thought that that would scare them (laughs) and it would um, frighten them. And we got to that point, and not a single one of them really even noticed it or remarked on it. It didn't seem to frighten them. And, you know, a group of inexperienced climbers from the U.S. would have definitely been quite scared by that. And then also, you know, moving over talus fields, which are big expanses of rocks that shift and move underneath you, is usually quite challenging for people that are new. And these girls moved very easily, very adept, and very carefully through that. But then the converse side of it is they'd sprain their ankles, and it was like the world was coming to an end, and they had never really experienced that because they haven't grown up being athletic. We're speaking with Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, Colorado, who led 13 Afghan women up a peak in Afghanistan. So the girls named the peaks you all climbed together the Lion Daughters of Mir Samir. And I understand mm-hmm. you have asked the government to officially name the mountaintop that. Any word on the progress? The uh, government of Panjshir has agreed. They met, all the tribal elders met and discussed it. And the girls originally asked it to be called Koishir Doktorone Afghanistan, which is the Lion Daughters of Afghanistan. And the local government asked us to name it Koishir Doktorone Mir Samir, which is the Lion Daughters of Mir Samir to recognize the the province and the the crowning jewel peak of that area, which the girls were eager to do. Mir Samir, yeah, help me understand that. That's the name of uh, uh, the peak? It's a 19,000-foot peak that um, sits high above most of Panjshir Valley, and it's steeped in legend. In the 50s, um, some British guys tried to climb it for the first time, and it was the subject of a book called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush by Eric Newby. Uh, and lots of people have tried to climb the mountain, and it's it's fairly difficult to climb. I don't actually know how many people have ever summited, but it's definitely less than 20. And it's, uh, it's a, a spectacular peak. As a climber, it's something I would love to see some Afghan climbers summit. And calling themselves then the Lion Daughters of Mir Samir. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I, su- I suppose that's a tip of the hat to their what? Their ferociousness in this regard. Yeah, and also the Panjshir Valley is known as the, the Lion Valley. Um, it has five different valleys in the big, greater valley. And then um, uh, Commander Masood, who was the head of the Northern Alliance, was a, a very strong figure in Afghanistan, and his name was the, the Lion of Panjshir. He um, led the resistance to the Taliban invasion and was unfortunately assassinated. Speaking of the Taliban, did you or did the girls have a brush with the Taliban? We didn't. We had some rumors that trickled into where we were from um, porters that were coming in that that were frightening of people coming from the neighboring province to kill us. But, you know, we, we had selected our camp and our location to provide um, geographic barriers to anybody coming in. And then we had the protection of the National Defense Security Forces in Afghanistan and the local government, and they were all watching very carefully and very concerned about our safety and and our our well-being while we were there. So you were okay, the women were okay, but does this put their families in any jeopardy? Absolutely, yeah, and most of the families are willing to take that risk. Um, They're really tired of the constraints and the lack of freedoms and they're willing, if their daughters want to do it, to support them. Um, some of one of the families did receive um, a night letter, which is I, I didn't know much about this until I was over there. But the Taliban will drop a letter on your doorstep saying what you're doing. We know what you're doing, and we don't approve of it, and you should stop. Sometimes you'll get several letters, and then it will escalate to somebody visiting you at your door and threatening you. And then if you don't stop, then you're on a hit list. And uh, one of the families did receive the letter, and the father just, um, he told us about it, but said, you know, I'm not going to stop my daughters from doing what they want to do. A night letter. It sounds so ominous. Is it because they arrive in the middle of the night? or They do, yeah. And then you wake up, and there there's an ominous threat at your door. Exactly. Yeah, and the girls have had other threats that are just normal threats to them in Kabul of, you know, um, a lot of it is verbal um, taunting and teasing and catcalling, but then it can escalate more. We had some of our team members not show up for several practices, and we were concerned about why, and we eventually found out that they had tried to negotiate with a taxi driver a fare. He was charging them too much. They refused to go with him, so they went to another taxi driver to get a ride to their practice. And the um, first taxi driver followed them. He continued to follow them for several days, so they basically disappeared and kept a really low profile to protect themselves. Well, briefly, uh, we mentioned that you have trips planned for 2016 in Afghanistan with this Ascend program. Can you say mm-hmm. if Mount Noshok is on the list of expeditions? It's that original mountain you wish to climb. It is, yeah. We we are not going to take the the whole team there. We now have thirty girls on the team. Uh, there more girls would love to join, but we just don't have the capacity to handle that at this point. But we will take um, a team of the best climbers and go. Um, we're very vague about when and that to to keep the safety um, of the expedition. And the same thing is true for the other projects that we have. Even the expedition we just did, the parents didn't even know where we were going until about a week before. Because it's just the more people that know, the greater chance there is that there's somebody who's going to be upset and plan some kind of attack. 
So we keep it very nebulous as to what our objectives are and when we're going. And as will we. Danica, lovely to, to speak with you. Great. Thank you so much. Danica Gilbert is a mountain guide who lives in Ridgeway. She led a team of 13 young Afghan women on a historic expedition through Afghanistan's mountainous Panjshir Valley. See photos from last summer's trip at cprnews.org. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of cprnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.